You can't only be a woman. You can't only be black. You can't only be, none of us are only one thing. So the more normal it becomes to have women, people of color, the more normal it becomes to, to have difference represented everywhere, the less you have to proclaim it in order to get in the room. Welcome back everyone to the 1 to 100 Architecture podcast, where we delve into everything architecture related, shed some light on our personal experiences and help you in understanding the architecture realm. I'm joined here today by Adonai Besma, Bethany Ray and Naomi, and a very, very special guest. Our guest today is the founder and director of the Graduate School of Architecture at the University of Johannesburg and the Dean of Architecture at the Spitzer School of Architecture. As the author of over 11 best-selling novels, translated into 15 languages, our guest today is currently setting up the AFI, African Futures Institute, as an independent postgraduate school of architecture and events platform in Accra, Ghana. She has lectured and published widely on the subjects of race, identity and architecture, and is also a recipient of the 2020 Reba Annie Spink Award for Excellence in Architectural Education. With so much recognition for changing the narrative for so many in architecture, I'm so pleased to welcome Professor Leslie Locke. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. How, how are you? Good. I was just saying earlier, I think like everybody just can't wait for this lockdown to somehow end, but um, at least spring is on its way. I'm, I'm, I'm in Edinburgh at the moment and these, what do you call those little white flowers, the snowdrops have come out the ground. So it does feel as if something's changing. Um, but yeah, thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. And we just kind of wanted to start the podcast by just getting to know you a bit better. So why did you decide to go into the architecture industry? What was it about architecture that appealed to you? And kind of what was your journey? Um, I mean, I came to architecture quite late. I started it, I think, when I was 27. Um, and had done a degree in sociology and actually started a degree in, in languages um, before that. And with a degree in sociology, I kept thinking I might do something like law um, or I think psychology was also sort of, of of interest. But I was working in Los Angeles and the guy that I worked for, um, I was as, as an office assistant. One day he asked me if I'd help him pick out some um, countertops for a a dry cleaning restaurant, a dry cleaning business that he was starting. And my mother had been an artist, so I knew how to draw a perspective. And so I quickly sketched out a couple of things for him. And he turned around and looked at me and he said, you want to be a lawyer? You're mad. You should be an architect. And I'd never actually thought of it. Um, and I didn't, I didn't know any architects. And I just suddenly thought, yeah. <laughs> and what is striking now is actually realizing how little I knew about architecture before I started it. I didn't even know it was a five-year degree. I thought it was a three-year degree. And I mean, back then, you know, you had a grant to study, so the cost of it wasn't, you know, wasn't such, such an issue. But I'm, I'm amazed at how naive I was um, entering the profession. Yeah, so Honestly. seems a very long time ago. <laughs> no, I mean, but even the fact that you said that a lot of it was like almost probably almost half the cost of what it costs now is crazy. Yeah. Um, but well, it was I'm, free. It was free? 
Yeah, yeah, back in the day, yeah. Nice. <laughs> wow. We've been robbed. We have been robbed. It's robbed. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm actually really upset. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Honestly, but um, Leslie, like you have been recognized by so many, and what does it mean for you to be a successful woman in architecture? I mean, it's an interesting question. I, I mean, I'm in my late 50s now, and I would have to say that um, the successful part in architecture came very late. So, you know, I left architecture um, probably about, I guess it's almost 20 years ago now, um, out of a frustration. I think with, at that time, the disciplines, it it seemed to me as an inability, it it could also be that I wasn't shouting loudly enough, but it seemed to be an, an inability and an unwillingness to deal with difference. So I began writing fiction. I had a fiction writing career for 12, 13 years before coming back into architecture. So I think it was only really with the setting up of the graduate school um, in Johannesburg, which was a very specific kind of school on on the one hand, but also a very specific place, a very specific political moment that I think some of those ideas that I'd had, you know, even as a student began to come to fruition. So it was a very long time to wait um, for for recognition, I think, yeah. So for a lot of the time in architecture, I felt very marginal to it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can definitely, definitely resonate with that because I feel like in the in the field of construction, especially in the UK, it's difficult to even be recognized as someone of senior position um, in the architecture world. So, you know, I guess I'm opening this question up to everyone else as well. I mean, what does it mean for mm. you to- a woman in architecture um she goes to bethany wow that's that's a good question because i'm still finding my feet i feel like this is very early days and i'm still discovering myself in terms of what kind of architecture i want to create and what i aspire to be um so in terms of being a woman in architecture i'm looking at that for myself um and i'm kind of on that exploration So I guess for now, I'm having to look to other people, even for having you here, Leslie, that's just amazing. You've done so much and just having someone like you and being able to see a role model like you is something that really helps me to believe that I can actually go somewhere within the profession of this Mm. industry. Um, And we know that it's a heavily white male dominated industry. So seeing these women kind of, as trailblazers kind of doing their own thing and becoming recognized is a really great thing. So yeah, um, it's hard to be a woman in the industry, but we just have to keep striving and- Yeah, and it, and it does change. I mean, um, you know, even as, a, as an educator, if I think about what first year was like when I was a student, both its demographic, but also its gender balance and what it's like now, it's, it's, it's almost two different professions. So so change is slow, but I would also say over the past year that we've really turned a corner. I think the the issues of race, of identity, of belonging, of migration, of otherness are are on the table in a way that they have never been, I I would say. So in, in some ways it's really heartening to see a whole generation 
that's very different from the generation that was around when I started studying. I mean, it's, you know, 50, 60%, probably, probably more men than more women than men now, but also just so many more people of color. Um, I think at the Bartlett's, I think I might've been the only one, or maybe there was one other in first year. And that's certainly not the case anymore. So it's, it's also great to see that when the moment emerged, which it has done over the past year, actually the troops are ready to meet it, which I think 20 or 30 years ago might not have been the case. Well, we're seeing progress. And I yeah. guess that's that's definitely so, yeah. Maybe slower than than you always hope for. Yeah. But I do think there are signs of it. Yeah. No, I think like what we have is extremely valuable. Like we're we have the ability to design from experiences. Like we we firsthand see the effects of gentrification and and other issues involved in the built environment and it's we're we're literally we're the solution to helping make these changes and actually rectify the issues that have occurred in the past um so and then combining that with our creativity and our drive like that is what is the future of architecture so the fact that we are having leading people from different backgrounds is what makes a difference and is what will make architecture more universal universal for different backgrounds and um, different ways of life so I think there's that connectivity there that architecture is not is is indiscriminate is for everyone so yeah 100% yeah and I think it's really important also to understand that um, that it's your creativity um, that's that's the real gift that you know people with different experiences different histories different backgrounds different languages different ways of seeing the world I mean, I've said this so many times, I sound like a broken record. <laughs> add to scholarship. They add to the profession. They add to the discipline. Um, it's not a question of, of only replacing and taking away. It's we're bringing something. And I think that once, you know, change is hard, everybody. I mean, no matter how much we proclaim we want it, when change arrives, everybody runs for the hills. But, um, but I think that this particular change brings so much with it um yeah it's a good moment i think i saw um a video an interview with zaha hadid quite a while ago and they asked her a similar question like what do you um how do you feel um as a woman in architecture and being in such in, in, a, in the limelight and she said um like I, I was expecting her answer to be something like oh you know um she is like a role model for other people but she was just like you know what a lot of people think that there's like there's so many differences and um you know that it's just a male-dominated field but she sees it from a different perspective she sees it as she is a person and this is what she is doing because she felt like at times um we think of like race we think of gender and that becomes um, a reason as to why you're doing it other to other than the fact that this is you're doing it because you want to do it and you want to um, bring something different to the table so yeah when I listened to that I was just like yeah you know sometimes um, these are things that are you know barriers but it doesn't always have to be like the main thing yeah and I mean you know it's, it's a double-edged sword um, in a yeah. sense your difference your gender your race your identity often is the it's the catalyst that gets your foot in the door, but it's also the, 
the kind of construct by which you will know you will be known forever. So it's it's learning, I think, to negotiate um, between being able to take hold of opportunities that that come because um, of a political imperative and, and knowing what to do with those opportunities when you get them, because you can't only be a woman, you can't only be black, you can't only be, none of us are only one thing. So um, I think, as you said in the beginning, the, the, the more normal it becomes to have women, people of color, the more normal it becomes to, to have difference represented everywhere, the less you have to proclaim it in order to get in the room. But um, at the same time, you know, no one gives up power willingly. Often you have to take it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. Um, I guess I'd also like to throw this question to Basma. How do you feel about being a woman in architecture? Basma, <laughs> <laughs> <That's what laughs> I think I've always, I've always said in the past because I haven't been, haven't stepped into industry yet. I don't really have a clear perspective of what it feels like to be a woman in architecture. But I feel like from education, I have. I mean, to be honest, at Oxford Brooks University, we had a lot of women in our studio. Like we were actually the most, our unit was the one that had the most um, females in it. And I think it was also because the premise of our brief was actually to help people and to, um, uh, it was it was more about helping like deprived social economic backgrounds. And maybe realize that I think part of, being a woman in architecture is that we have this altruistic sense and a view of the world and realizing that architecture provides solutions for these key issues. And especially in this world that we're living in, um, architecture is actually pointing towards focusing on dealing with key issues in architecture. But I feel like now that I'm, I'm only starting, um, I'm in my first day in industries tomorrow, so you could probably ask me that question in a couple months time. but. Um, I think the future is incredibly bright. So yeah, I think, yeah, I think I kind of like asked, a, answered a question within a question, which is what I usually do. But, um, but yeah, that's what I believe really. But yeah, I was, personally with me, I'm very interested in the teaching side of architecture. Um, I've always was very curious about how someone who studies architecture um, then goes on to teach it and um, or practicing teaching and I was just really interested in your journey because you've had such extensive background in teaching you've taught in like America and in South Africa and the UK so I was just wondering what like what were the key differences that you like understood from teaching and um, where did you actually enjoy teaching the most? Um I mean, they're, they're all, it's interesting, on the surface of it, you'd think they, there'd be quite a lot of similarity. And I mean, all of those locations speak English for, for, for one thing, or, you know, English is, is one of the languages, but they're actually phenomenally different. And, you know, I was lucky enough to have had the most gentle introduction to teaching. So I went straight from being a student. I finished in my part two in June, and then I started teaching in September. And the person I taught with, who was who then became my PhD supervisor, was probably the best introduction you could ever have to teaching. He was a phenomenally generous um, teacher. And so I essentially sat alongside him for three years, you know, co-teaching in the unit. 
But in some ways it was the worst introduction to teaching because I thought that all institutions would be like that. And of course they're not. So when I left the Bartlett and, and started um, teaching by myself, um, for one thing, but I also moved to the United States, it was a rude awakening because actually not all um, setups are, are, are that um, encouraging, let's say. And I found the US the most difficult place to teach in, in and which is quite unusual in the sense that questions of race and identity are very much at the surface of American life. But it's also a very highly regulated society. Um, and the, the kind of infrastructure of, of architectural education is very, very rigid. So it wasn't possible to change things in ways that I thought would actually produce any difference. Um, South Africa was the most dynamic place to teach. It was also the most um, emotionally fraught because um, questions of, I mean, everything in South Africa is seen through the lens of race. And, and it's still such a raw, painful subject. So some of the most harrowing conversations I think I've ever had with students um, occurred in South Africa. But it was also the place where the political will to do things differently was at its highest. So setting up the graduate school, you know, in some senses was such a gift because we had almost complete freedom. And for me, it was the closest I've come so far, obviously setting up the, the school in Accra, you know, we have ambitions and hopes to, to, do, to do even more. But it was the place where I saw for the first time that actually the students uh, were, were way ahead of us tutors. They, they knew instinctively where the discipline had to go and in a sense, all we had to do was prepare the ground for them. And, and you know, as soon as they touched it, they ran. And, and that was the most um, incredible sensation. You'd go into tutorials and come away with goosebumps because the work was going off into directions that you could never have predicted. But it was pure, it was authentic, it was political, it was aesthetic um, and incredibly inventive. Um, and you know, having had that experience, I, I, I kind of now know what you need to put in place in order to allow that work to emerge, which I think was the real gift of, of the five years there. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like architectural education needs like major reforming? I mean, speaking from our experience, um, we've had some reservations about our education. Um, I mean, considering the fact that we don't, we didn't have like a wide understanding of different kinds of architecture around the world is more focused on post you know postmodernism and i'm just interested in that and why that's the case and what we should do i mean yeah i do i do think um i do think it's it needs to change um i'm always a little bit hesitant you know when when people say do you do you think that the the whole of architectural education needs to reform because I think there are still aspects of it that are, that are amazing. I mean, I, I wouldn't be standing here today if, if I hadn't had actually a really good, good architectural education myself. But I do think that um, like many disciplines, you know, in the past 10, 15, 20 years, they have become more complex and the kind of world in which people go out to work, no matter what they do, has become more complex. And so, the, the idea that somehow you can cover all of the complexity 
in the same five years, I think is, is wrong. And what's happening now, particularly in relation to the areas that I'm interested in, is you're getting little bits of it, a tiny little bit of you know, difference, a tiny bit of otherness, a tiny little bit of, you know, um, lots of many little things. And I actually think that what's needed in, in, in this particular field is a lot of depth. It, it, you don't need a lot more of littleness. You need a lot more time and depth to engage. And I suspect that what will eventually happen is that certain schools will become known for tackling in, in really deep, profound ways some of these issues and other schools won't, which I also think is fine. Um, to, to try and cover everything is, is almost impossible. And this is a, this is a topic that, that deserves um, proper, proper investigation. Um, just going back on, you know, the topic of, uh, I guess, you know, being a woman in, uh, in this industry that was known for being male dominated. Um, did you ever feel that you needed to compromise your womanhood in order to enter the world of construction? Obviously, things have changed <clears throat> now, but um, it's still it's it's two different lived experiences being uh, a man in this world and being a woman. Um, and before it was, I think the industry was probably all viewed at from one angle. Um, and so, you know, yeah, did you did you feel that you had to compromise in certain areas? Not exactly. And I'm, I mean, I'm hardly a practicing architect. You know, I've built three buildings and I swear to God, I'll never build another one. I, I absolutely hate it. <laughs> but, um, and so most of my, my architectural career really has been in, in, in schools of architecture. Um, and in the last, probably in the last 10 years, I would say, um, you know, even academic leadership um, has changed. There's, there's, there are a lot of women leaders now Maybe, maybe even more in the past five years than there were in the, in, in the previous five. But what I did find um, actually both in the US and in South Africa, which, is, um, which was a little bit of a surprise to me, was that the figure of the black female um, in both places has a historical caregiver role. You know, when I resigned from my position in the States, um, the, and, and I was very public about why I'd resigned, the floodgates opened up, um, particularly to black female academics, and I'm still getting emails from them, from, from, from many. And one woman said to me, there the, were the two emails that really stood out. One woman said to me that she and her daughter had had um, a discussion, and her daughter was convinced I was a millennial because I, had a very strong sense of my own self-worth, which she didn't see her mother's generation as having. And it was a mother who wrote to me and said, I was ashamed in front of my daughter to admit that I had colluded in my own job, in my own oppression. So that email was, it hit me quite hard. I was, I was quite taken by that. And then a second email came in where a woman, an African-American academic, not architecture said to me, what you have to understand is that the role of taking care of ourselves in the United States is not a position that black women have ever been historically allowed to occupy. We take care of others. And so what I realized over the past, I don't know, five, six years maybe in, in academia, being a leader 
being a black female leader meant that I, my primary role was to take care of others. And, and that is often incompatible with leadership. Um, and I don't mean that leadership is not about taking care of others, but it cannot only be about taking care of others. You cannot only put everyone else's needs in front of, in front of yours. So it's, it's maybe not the way I think I would have expected gender to, to play a role, but um, that, but that was my experience. Yeah. Mm. And especially around white female colleagues, that was, that was a difficult, difficult relationship. Mm. What do you believe the role of an architect is today? I mean, again, uh, you know, I think, you know, when I did work, I, I, I didn't work for very long in practices. I, I think I had two or three jobs. But one of the things I recognized even back then was that, you know, you could work in one firm and have one experience and then work in another firm and have a completely, like almost different, different discipline, different profession. So I think a lot of it depends enormously on where you work. The one thing I would say now, though, is that architects are generally very good at putting together things that don't always belong together. And it's a kind of spatial um, way of organizing things. Um, and it's an in incredibly useful way of problem solving because often if you can't resolve a problem, you know how to go around it or underneath or on, on top of it or through it. So, and there's a way in which spatial thinking really helps you um, deal, with, deal with issues. And I would say, and in, you know, so Peter Cook used to say this to us at the Bartlett when we were students all the time, and, and even more so when I was teaching, you know, the job of the school is not to teach you how to do, it's to teach you how to think. And, you know, if, if the school is able to teach you to think in a fluid, agile, three-dimensional, lateral way, you will manage wherever you go. And I, I, I like to think that, I think that's true, yeah. So do you think, in terms of the way that, um profession is being taught is is leading a different path as to probably what it was previously maybe when you studied it I mean I think when, when I studied there was um there was a kind of assumption number one that you would go out into a world that was fairly stable you know when I finished I think in 92 I finished part one in 92 it was the tail end of a recession so a lot of people you know went to France but you know going to France was about as far as where as anybody went. Nowadays, I mean, you go anywhere. So it's become much more global in that sense. Um, but it's been so long since I've worked in practice that to be honest, I couldn't tell you what, what practice requ requires. You know, when we started the, the graduate school in Johannesburg, you know, one of the biggest criticisms was that the work that the students were producing was making them unfit for practice. It was too imaginative, too esoteric. It didn't really have anything to do with practice. You know, they didn't, we weren't teaching them Rhino or BIM or whatever. And the very first year, the, we, the, the first crop of graduates we had, and it was, it was a part two school only, one of the students had a bursary from a very big commercial firm. And I met his boss, who was one of the partners at a dinner party. And he said, oh, you run the graduate school. You know, we've just had this young kid. He came back, you know, he's graduated and he had to come back into the practice that was part of the deal and one of the things they they asked all of the kids who they'd given um, bursaries to was to, to just you know explain what they'd done for their projects and he said I couldn't understand a thing 
but I tell you, he kept me interested for one hour. How much money do you want? And I, I was looking for sponsorship for an international lecture series. He just said, how much money do you want? Any kid who can keep my attention for one hour, I'll give you the money. And, and it was the first time I realized that actually what we were producing were students who knew how to think. Um, and, and, you know, to their credit, the practice was able to see that. So, I think that's really great talking about the way you think. And it'd be really interesting to just understand, like, who inspires you and why? Um, throughout your journey, did you have mentors as well? And because you inspire so many people at this point, so it'll be good to know who inspires you. Well, you know, I grew up in Ghana um, and I, I grew up in a time actually when the, there wasn't a huge amount of entertainment. I mean, was a couple of cinemas we didn't really have TV, certainly not in the way, you know, you had it in the UK. And so we read a lot. And partly because, you know, at the, the time I grew up in the sort of 70s and 80s, the economy in Ghana was very bad. And I, I don't think for quite a long part of that time, there wasn't a bookshop. And so we would rely on you know, relatives of my father going overseas to bring back books for us to read. And as a result, my, my siblings and I had enormously wide reading you know, tastes because they would just bring you back anything. Mm -hmm. So I think growing up, I had a very strong sense that the world was a really, really wide place. And, you know, reading Russian literature at the same time I was reading American literature at the same time I was reading, you know, South African or, you know, whatever it was, gave me an appetite for seeing things in multiple ways, I, I think. But there was also something very comforting about architecture because it, and I've said this before, architecture presents itself as a discipline as very stable and very solid and very kind of rooted. But actually I think it's anything but that. It's, it's actually one of the most fluid and malleable and in some ways frustrating disciplines because as soon as you think you've kind of got a handle on it, it, it kind of shifts a little bit. And I love that aspect to it that you could never quite get to the end of it, that, um, that there was always something more to, to learn. And so in, in a really roundabout way, architecture has also been an incredible mentor to me because it's always just kept itself just a little bit ahead of me. Well, yes. answer, yes. You took us on a journey. <laughs> I know. Me on a completely bad journey. That's a really poetic way of yeah saying it. It's really yeah, that was quite inspiring. <laughs> it's 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 a maddening discipline, but it's I mean you probably all do this in your own ways. Um, you know, you have one set of languages at home, even if it's the same English language. I mean. Nowadays, they call it code switching. You know, you just, you, you drop into Patois or to Pidgin English or to whatever your mother tongue is. And then, you know, you go out into the world and you, you, know, you speak differently or you behave differently. And so you're always kind of in multiple places at once. And actually architecture is a bit like that. It's neither science nor art. It's, it's not quite fixed, but it's not quite solid, but it's not fluid either. And so I think there is something inherent about architecture that speaks to people with kind of diasporic or multiple identities. Um, and I found myself very much at home in it. I mean, it's such a pun and I didn't, I didn't expect it. But, you know, even the fact that, you know, when I teach now and I'm talking to students, 
you know, I, I'm teaching in the States online and we had this really interesting conversation with my students at, at Virginia, where I was saying to them, you know, partly Zoom forces this on us, but you know, what's a drawing anymore? It, you know, you're talking to me in video, we're talking to each other through a screen, there's animation, you know, your drawing lasts for 14 minutes. You know, when I was studying architecture, those possibilities weren't yet there. And so even the means of representation is also shifting, which I just find, I find it fascinating. Very poetic. That's it for my eyes. You might write a, a poetry book on architecture. <laughs> <laughs> we'll probably buy it off. We'll probably be the first customer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's really interesting that you commented on like how malleable architecture has been throughout your journey, and especially as you know, it sounds to me that architecture is nowhere near what it used to be you know, the understanding of what architecture is as a subject, as a discipline, as an industry, is no longer just mm. math and physics and drawing things and getting them into to an engineer and then building them as a whole other process. So, you know, based off of your experience and observing the industry over the years, you know, seeing its shortcomings, but particularly its progression since you started, you know, as you stated earlier, is there anything that women of color can do to gain more recognition in the industry that you know, you've observed or you've noticed that there's either a lack of or could be worked on or there's other modes of putting us on a platform that we can do? Because I know there's a lot of work that the big boys can do, but I feel like, you know, we also have to put in that extra push because we are women of color. So is there any kind of things for that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I was lucky enough in, in South Africa to, to work with um, some absolutely amazing female students. And for most of them, the moment they understood that they, could speak in, in an authentic voice in what they called their own voice. And I think certainly in the school, it's, it's maybe easier to find room for, for, for that kind of expression. But the minute we were able to make that platform for them, when they left the school, what they carried was not the ability to replicate that project, but the confidence with which they carried themselves actually propelled them through many of the I guess what would have previously been obstacles and I'm thinking in particular of a couple of women who you know decided that performance to, to perform their projects um, would be their means of representation not writing not writing a 10,000 word dissertation not doing the kind of conventional plan section elevation that was not going to be their voice. And it took a while for them to be able to, to literally build the courage to, to try work out in that new medium. But the minute they did it, in, in a sense, there was no turning back, like they became somebody else and they became their true selves. And, you know, it's hard to say to, to women who don't have the opportunity or the platform to, to do that, but I, I'm almost certain that if you can't find that, 
then the struggle in the workplace is exacerbated because it's as if you've never had the space to be authentic. And it's, it's a really underrated and, and often underused word, but authenticity for me is, is very, very closely connected to creativity. And it's almost impossible to be creative in someone else's voice. So I think it is about um, fighting for, for the right to, to be authentic. I really like that. I think there's, there's almost this idea that you almost become your project. In yeah. Too, with this being able to speak, not just about it, but almost to be it. Um, I would say so. And I mean, you know, uh, one thing that, that, that happened in South Africa that's, I mean, it's kind of tied to, to issues of gender was, again, I think it was the first year of the GSA and I had a student, a young woman, a female student who was a silversmither who had done silversmithing previously. I think somebody here is also a jeweler. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> so she'd been a silversmither before she'd studied architecture and under the conventional curriculum, she'd have been told to, to forget all of that and, you know, concentrate on, on becoming an architect. And, you know, it just happened to be the first year of the unit system Africa. And my teaching partner, Samaya, and I were, were really interested in it. Anyhow, so she did a series of projects that were all about weight and counterweight. And the installations were more like very large sculptures. I mean, they were like giant pieces of jewelry. And when we went into the external examination, um, a South African woman architect, an Indian South African woman architect um, came and I'd been, I'd, I'd specially selected her to be in the external examiners. And she came and she had a look at the work and she said, I can't examine this. This is not architecture. I have no idea what this is. Just take me out of the examination. I don't know what you're doing. And I mean, I was gutted. And the girl, the woman, the, the student was absolutely gutted. Anyhow, we got her examined and she passed. And about three years later, that woman came to me um, at a social event and she said, you know what, I, I, I have to apologize. And I was like, oh, okay, what, what's going on here? And she said, she had been one of the first non-white students at one of the big universities in Johannesburg. So she's a couple of years younger than me. So she's talking, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And she said, as a, a, a student of color, it was decided for her that the only project, projects that she should or could be involved with were social upgrade projects. So she was sent off to the township to, you know, build community centers or, you know, upgrade toilets or whatever it was, which are all very needed projects. But she said when she saw this woman with these giant pieces of jewelry, she was so jealous that she couldn't speak. And she said, if anyone had said to her as a student, you have as much right as anyone else to go into your own imagination. She'd have done it like a shot. And she just said, I saw this young girl and I was so angry, I wanted to, I wanted to cry. And I just thought, wow, you know, 20 years of, of, of being fed a particular kind of diet um, had resulted in this rage. That's really, really interesting. Like I'd never, and you know, that's, it tells a story of, you know what things change very rapidly the way we work and the way we see things and what we see is successful and what's you know acceptable what's to the books what makes architecture architecture what makes yeah and i mean you were saying as well in the beginning that um um you know women often are, are, are given altruistic projects because we're seen as caregivers and you know i'm 
I'm very wary of that as, as, a, as a statement because in the end, it seems to be as much a, a tool of control as anything else. Like you will do this and you know, this is deemed appropriate for you. Um, you know, I had two, two students in, in Sydney last year in Australia, one Palestinian um, Australian and one Syrian Australian. And they did this project of projecting their names in Arabic script through perspex um, script, but they projected their names through light onto their bodies. And one of them had cellulite, I think on her, must've been on her thigh. And there was this moment where the, the script and the cellulite began to merge and this incredible terrain, it was like a landscape emerged and suddenly they started talking about gender and patriarch. And I mean, things that would not have emerged if they hadn't done that work. And for me, those moments are absolutely magical because suddenly there's a language that's emerging from the student's own experience. Um, that, that's a language that you can, you can work with. And it's nice because it would have never been done had they not gone through we, we had a two-week course together, yeah. It was amazing. Yeah, it was really good, yeah. Yeah, I think that's quite um, um, amazing, that the fact that as an architectural educator, you are put in a position where you can encourage people to bring their creativity and parts of themselves um, into their projects and into their narratives. Um, so I guess, like, for you, as an architectural educator, looking at your time in practice, um, and you were saying that you wouldn't go back to doing it again, what do you find fulfilling as an architectural educator? I think it's, a, it's, it, it's exactly that moment, you know, of the, the moment where your students surpassed you. Um, for me, that's always the, the best moment. And I mean, you know, shoot me, for being wrong, but I thought the job of every educator was to, 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 to bring the student to the table, you know. Um, I, I just know that, you know, when I started at the Bartlett in, in first year, when I started 1980, 80 something, you know, I'd, I'd hear the word culture, culture, culture all the time, but I kept thinking, well, that's not, what people are saying is culture here is not what I know as culture. So there's, there's gotta be some disconnect between what I know of and, and what's, what's out there. And I think things have changed quite a lot since then. I think there's a much, much broader understanding of what culture means now, even if people are still, or institutions are still a little bit unsure as to how to deal with it. Um, but, you know, as we said right at the beginning of this podcast, you know, change, change is, is the, the, the ruling classes don't give up change. They don't give up power. You, you, you force them into situations. Um, which, which is, I think, I think Black Lives Matter absolutely did that. And I know it's not going to be on the agenda forever, which is why there's a, a space that's open right now and it's, it's up to your generation and mine to grab that space. Yeah. But, um, but it has changed, yeah. Yeah, and I think right now is like a tough time for students and graduates um, in this like moment. Um, and I think more so for those underrepresented so like what advice would you give to someone that's struggling to like get experience and get their foot out there um because I, we had a um a clubhouse talk 
um, yesterday um, and we had um, someone in um, university who's studying, his, I think he's in second year um, and he, we were talking about personal branding and um, he said something interesting. He said that, um, should I just mold myself into um, a part one architectural assistant, just mold myself just to get a job? Um, and we were saying no, because um, essentially you need to bring yourself and know who you are and what type of architect you want to be, not mold yourself to fit the job. What would your advice be? I mean, you know, there's always, um, there's always a little bit of molding going on, um, almost, almost no matter what you do. I, I think the, the key thing is, is not to mold yourself to the point where you are no longer you. You know, I've taught many students who've, who've come to the party so angry, so full of suppressed rage that they've almost become unteachable, that, um, that there is almost nothing you can say, partly because of, you know, a history of bad experiences. And, and also I think, you know, a, a general kind of impatience. Um, I was reading somewhere today um, about celebrity um, in, in, you know, in 2021 and how, you know, somebody can have 20 million followers on YouTube and you've never heard of them. And so the, the, the relationship between people's influence and how, how well they're known is, is also very slippery at the moment. And so people kind of trying to mold and brand themselves into something, you know, I think it's really tricky because the thing that you're trying to mold yourself into could, you know, could be a cipher, it could be, could be a construct, you know, it could be there today and gone tomorrow. So I think it's really, it's really tough to model yourself on something that you're not very sure of. So that relationship between trying to be true to yourself when you don't even know what it is that you want to say and um, what I always call fronting can also often leave you out in the cold. You, you don't even get a, a look in. So it's, it's always a really delicate balance between pushing and agitating and insisting on change but also retaining some part of you that, that, that has the ability to listen and, and to learn. Um, you know, Jonathan Hill, who taught me, I mean, he said to me one of the most valuable things I think I've ever heard when I was still a student, he said, look, you're obviously determined to investigate this relationship between race and architecture. I'm gonna tell you now that everything anyone says to you is suspect. You are not going to know for the rest of your career where feedback is coming from. So treat it all, praise, damnation, treat it all as suspect. Because in the end, it will force you to rely on your own understanding of your own work. And I have to say, it was really, it was really valuable advice. And often very hard because, you know, you put work out there and you want somebody, you want encouragement, you want support. You know, people can support you, but you have no idea, you know, are you just in the room because, you, because you're, you're blackface? Are you there to bump up the diversity numbers? Are you there as a representation of something? Um, it's, it's a tricky, tricky territory. I just kind of want to backtrack because I know you said that you spent a lot of time in Ghana. And I think 
for me specifically, one thing I noticed um, when I went to Ghana, because my family's from Ghana originally, um, and I used to visit there quite a bit. But I think one thing that really, um, I guess, I saw quite quite often was the divide between the rich and the poor. And I think in the UK, especially, um, especially during lockdown, I think we've been encouraged to design a lot of communal spaces for people, um, especially when it comes to social housing. So I guess in Ghana, what is your opinion on, um, I guess, more gated communities? And do you feel like this divides the rich and the poor? I mean, it's a, it's a really broad question and, and, and I'm probably gonna not answer it in the most direct way. You know, I, I hear a lot about, you know, inequality in, in Ghana and, you know, it's where I'm from and people talk about it all the time. And I come to the UK and I look around and I see inequality everywhere. And so, you know, this idea that inequality belongs to Africa or that, that we have it in, in, in spades in, in ways that, you know, we don't have anywhere else, I, I, I don't believe that to begin with. I think what's, what's more difficult is that um, the inequality in a place like Ghana is more visible. And partly because, you know, the middle class in, in Ghana is, it's small, it's, it's growing, but it often has no um, clear idea of how to display its wealth. And if you think about, you know, European um, societies who have been displaying wealth and displaying, it, it, let's say, exploring ways to display their wealth for, I don't know, three, four, 500 years. I mean, a lot of them have been wealthy for quite a long time. In, in, in places where the, the bourgeois class is much newer, you often mimic what you think is, is good taste or um, bourgeois taste. And, and that's certainly what's happening in Ghana. You mimic the gated communities of South Africa or of the United States because you think that that's what um, having money means. That, that's, that's the expression of it. And that's where I would say, you know, countries that have a very robust architectural culture are able to discuss, to exhibit, to curate, to show that there are different ways of, of um, moving, you know, of different, different means of social mobility. And, and that for me is the exciting thing about putting something like an institute or a platform of architecture in Ghana, which we, we don't have at the moment. And so this reliance on images and ideas and patterns and typologies from elsewhere, I think is, is something that we really have to address. That's really powerful thing that architecture is so visual. The fact that, you know, image speaks so much about a place. Um, yeah, I just, I just had to comment on that, that it's just, it's crazy that the way that you see a place is through, through its architecture and it, it speaks more than, yeah. than anything else. Yeah, and in places where there's, there's, I mean, you know, we've said it in the beginning of this podcast, you know, architecture is a wider category than the building of buildings. There's all of the, you know, architectural criticism, there's architectural publications, there's, you know, there's a whole, you know, cultural sphere around architecture that's not simply about working in a practice. And I think in places where that's, that discourse, that wider discourse around architecture is weaker, um, you're often quite insecure as a culture and then much more likely to simply just take on board anything that comes your way. And I'm, I'm horrified, um, I mean, not just in Ghana, 
you know, people click houseplan.com, plans download, you take them off to a technician, you draw it up and you build the house with, with almost zero understanding of what it is that you've, you've bought. So, um, you know, the wider conversation around architecture is really important. And, you know, now in, when I go back to Ghana, I mean, I, I was there in November and December, the younger um, generation of architects, I mean, they're much more savvy, um, let's say, than, than architects 20 or 30 years ago, partly because they have more access. But, you know, they're going to online lectures, they're, you know, looking at, at stuff in a much, much more critical way. And so there's a, a generation that's emerging in Africa that are super switched on. Um, and also much more able to move between architecture, music, fashion, film, photography in, in ways that 20 years ago was really hard. So um, it's a very vibrant scene, but you know, at 25, 27, 28, you haven't yet had the commissions, you know, to start displaying this um, in built form yet. At the moment, a lot of it is ephemeral, it's, you know, competitions, it's, it's unbuilt projects, but, but their time is coming. Yeah, and I think, um, as you were saying before, like architecture is fluid. And I think over the years, the role of the architect has changed. So even when we ask the question, like, what is the role of an architect now? I think it has changed from the architect that we once knew, we once learned about. And even some, um, when you were in education, the role of an architect has changed. I guess that for us, when we were studying, we see the role of the architect as someone who is a translator, especially in the Absolutely. UK, um, someone who like connects and consults. Do you think in Ghana, does, does the architect consult and translate in that way? Or do you think they take more responsibility in terms of like um, taking leadership and in the construction process? Um, it's interesting, you know, I, I've built, all the projects I built, I built in Ghana. Um, and um, I would say that um, my word was, was the final word. So it was quite a leadership um, position, you know, essentially the contractors did as I said. But at another level, I think, you know, I don't think there's an African alive who doesn't speak more than one language. You know, pretty much every African I know speaks two languages. And so this act or, of translating, I think is something that comes very naturally. And I think the, the, the other stuff around architecture, the publications, the writing, the criticism, the architectural journalism, the exhibitions, all of that stuff, which is still in its infancy, let's say in a place like Ghana, once that stuff starts to become more widely known, I think we're going to see an explosion in terms of the skill of, of translating that, that, um, that architects will, will have a better handle and more source material to translate from. Um, at the moment, you know, things are still very fragmented. I mean, we don't have an architecture foundation or an architecture center. At the, you know, there are very, very few lectures, there's, you know, there's, it's, it's not very public, but, you know, um, Ajay Associates have opened up a practice in Accra, and when I walk into that office, um, it's, it's fantastic, the, the, the kind of atmosphere of, you know, 30, 40 young Ghanaian architects working on projects that are all around the world. Uh, you can see um, the, the kind of excitement. So I think, again, it's a, it's a, it's a society that's, hungry and ready 
um, which is, it's the kind of best, it's the best time to start something when, when people are hungry for it. And I think even um, looking at like my dad, for example, he can go to Ghana and be like, I'm going to buy this land and I want to build. And he takes that leadership role and then he um, can drop his own plan and just give it to a drafter to you know make sure that it makes sense. Yes. And then the fact that he has like more of like a project manager role in it, it's just like interesting to see that side of things in yeah. Ghana compared to like, you know, studying in um, the UK and seeing the role of an architect in a kind of different lens. So yeah, I think, yeah, the role of the architect is very interesting. Yeah, and it's often to do with um, the kind of how regulated the society is, you know, I mean, the UK is fairly regulated. I found the States hyper regulated. So mm -hmm. in a sense, you know, to, to do anything unusual or out of the ordinary um, is, is very difficult. It's quite risk averse. And, you know, there, there are downsides to, to being in places that are unregulated. Or, yeah. um, but, you know, Africa is the world's youngest continent, average age, 19.8. You know, it's it, there's a lot of energy. And I guess to just last question, uh, just as like an insight into you know, how you became your own designer, how you, your past projects, you as an architect and as a you know person in education now, I guess what we wanna know is how do you find the balance between the narrative of space, the design, and the functionality of a building when, when making one? Um, so the only, the only three buildings I've done, um, one was my own house and two were um, projects for my ex-boyfriend. So there was a very um, intimate relationship between what I wanted and what I designed, which is actually a luxury. So, um, you know, I made designed my own house and built it in Ghana and, um, I was very clear that I wanted, you know, single woman, no children. I wanted a space of a certain kind of dimension and feeling. And I remember my father, um, who was a surgeon, who you know often came with me to the site, and he'd sort of look around. And as you know, as it was going up, I think he didn't quite understand that there were going to be no rooms, and it, you know, it was just it was open plan. And at one point, he said to me, oh, "But darling." it's all open. And I said, yes, I mean, that's kind of how I, <laughs> I like to live. And he said, but you all have a bedroom. And I said, well, no, you know, the, the, the bookshelf is here and then the bed's going to be back there. And then I said to him, but you know, if you think about it, it's actually how many Africans live. You know, if you go to the rural areas, you live in one space, you might cook outside or so on. Anyhow, he sort of thought about it for a minute. And then, you know, the penny sort of dropped. And then I would hear him afterwards saying to, um, you know, his colleagues and things, my daughter has built a modern African house. <laughs> he was so proud of that. <laughs> and it wasn't exactly true. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, I wanted to live in a loft. <laughs> the loft just happened to be on the ground. But, um, but it was very, very interesting how, you know, he processed it. Um, and... You know, being your own architect, again, I think is an incredible luxury. You, there's a narrative about how you want to live and, you know, essentially you draw and then build that narrative. Um, I think that's really nice that you, you were able to have that luxury to build. Oh, it was great, yes. So close to, you know, 
this your own visions to your own utility to your own function I think it's really it is a luxury and I think it's something that's also quite nice practice I guess even no it was yeah and I mean it's um it was interesting because my 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 ex um who who, who lives you know actually very close and you know still still really close you know in in the end he wound up living in a house that was my interpretation of what he wanted but I could also see how strongly he'd been influenced by what I wanted so you know he'd seen my own house he'd enjoyed the dimensions he'd enjoyed the space it was quite an unusual house house for Ghana I think and and you know firsthand I saw actually how influential space is so you know his lifestyle has adapted to the same kind of environment that um that was somehow in my hands which I think is in the hands of every architect yeah so to some degree we do shape the way yeah. we experience and interact and almost a custom and comfort to a building absolutely yeah um we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us yeah <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much ladies it's very enjoyable <laughs> honestly Leslie thank you so much for just being pleasure. transparent and honest and poetic <laughs> like this is definitely like one of the funniest but also most real episodes that we've had and fantastic I'm glad yeah yeah, we just say honestly, we were so shaky before the episode. We're like, oh my god, fan a little bit, but <laughs> honestly, talk to my assistant. There's no more fan girl left. <laughs> definitely put all of us in our comfort zones, and um, I think I'm speaking for myself here, but I feel like it's actually possible. It is. Um, and definitely hear, hearing your experience I think sometimes we put such a timeline on on when we should become an architect and when we should be getting certain things by especially because now everyone's successful by the age of 17 so it's like you know <laughs> when, you know how do we sort of how do we take that pressure off of ourselves in, in, able, in order for us to be able to be ourselves and the most successful not just architects but person um you know so again just thank you so much for for being here no i mean if you if you have the time um it's a bit of a pun but time magazine have, have, have just put out their 100 of the world's next leaders and my teaching partner in south africa samaya valley's on that list and you know i met samaya i was actually at her graduation show um in i think 2014 or 2013 in johannesburg and i kind of walked around and I saw these drawings and I said to someone, who did those drawings? And they said, Samaya, and I said, can you bring her over? And she arrived and I said, do you want to teach with me? And she sort of looked at me like, who's this mad person? <laughs> but she, she, she came on board um, and we taught together for three years. And you know, I think the first year she cried every day, but she has developed into the most phenomenal teacher and she was part of the three woman practice that won the Serpentine, the youngest architects ever. Oh, wow. I think 29. And to me, she's a, such an amazing example of somebody who found her voice, stuck to her voice, and now the world is opening up in ways that she could never have predicted. So um, it is really possible. 
I think it's just a matter of us just, you know, giving, handing the mic to other people and the fact that you've given someone that opportunity and allowed that person to grow. Sure, and the thing is, like, we need to also do that for each other, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, she did it for others. She's done it for her students. And, and you know, when the moment was, was, was there, she took it, you know? I mean, there's lots of people who, who don't. And so I think it's a combination of having ambition and tenacity and all of those things, but also having humility. And, you know, our current social media obsessed age doesn't make humility easy. But Yeah, architecture at the end of the day, it's not competition. It's, it's a practice of collaboration. Absolutely. Yeah. That is the essence of why we do this podcast and why we invite people like you is because Absolutely. We need to share that message. We need to let people have a voice. And that's literally what we've started this podcast yeah. about. And um, we've learned so much from you today. Like, <laughs> I'm definitely going to listen back to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you've started it. You, like you said, you, you've done the podcast, you know, um, and you reach out to people and you, you, you do it. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening today. Um, stay up to date on our social media. That's at one to one hundred podcast. Send us a DM, email us one to one hundred podcast at gmail.com and we'd love to hear all your suggestions on how we can tailor our content for you. Is that right? Is that right? <laughs>